Hello and welcome to the Hill Pain Expert podcast with me, Ben Boschel. Uh, some listeners may have noticed that it's been quite a while since I last um, put out an episode, uh, probably back in J- July, so in the summertime. And um, it, w- it has not been a planned um, sabbatical, uh, if you like. Uh, the reason that it's taken me a while to get another episode out is that I bought a house and I think I grossly underestimated the um, extra time that, and stress that goes into moving home and then trying to get the new place sorted out uh, and ready for Christmas as well. So it's all been a bit hectic, but um, I'm pleased to say that I do actually have another episode to share with you guys today. So the paper we're looking at today is um, it was published in the Orthopaedic Journal of Sports Medicine in 2018. So it's a relatively up-to-date study. The title of the study is The Long-Term Prognosis of Plantar Fasciitis, a 5-15 to 15 year follow-up study of, um, of 174 patients with ultrasound examination. The study had four aims, and, and these aims were to assess the long-term prognosis of plantar fasciitis, to evaluate whether baseline characteristics could predict long-term outcomes, And the authors looked at a wide range of characteristics, which included sex, BMI, age, smoking status, uh, physical work, exercise-induced symptoms, uh, the presence of bilateral heel pain, plantar fascia thickness, and the presence of a heel spur. The third aim of the study was to assess the long-term ultrasound characteristic uh, developmental changes of the fascia and the fourth aim was to assess whether ultrasound guided corticosteroid injections induced atrophy of the plantar fat pad on the heel. The patient data was collected between uh, 2001 to 2011 and in total initially there were 269 patients who were diagnosed with um, and treated for plantar fasciitis by two examiners. Um, This included an ultrasound examination to to confirm the diagnosis. In 2016, uh, these patients were invited to come uh, back in and take part uh, in a study, um, of which 174 patients said yes. All patients underwent a telephone interview, followed by an up-to-date clinical exam uh, using a diagnostic ultrasound examination as well um, of the PF on both feet. So during the telephone interview, um, certain data was uh, collected by the um, by the researchers, which were looking at um, onset of symptoms um, and at the, and presence of symptoms at follow up. They looked at the cause and presence of uh, unilateral or bilateral heel pain uh, at the onset of symptoms. Uh, at follow up, um, they documented whether there was a disappearance of symptoms and whether there had been any relapses during the time frame. And the uh, various applied treatments uh, medications were also recorded. To grade or quantify pain, they used a 0 to 10 numerical rating scale. And at the follow-up period, patients were classified into two groups, uh, which was an asymptomatic group. And this is if they scored 0 in the numerical uh, rating scale. And a symptomatic group is if they scored higher than 0 on the numerical rating scale regarding pain. And for patients that had bilateral heel pain, the most painful foot at baseline uh, was the one which was included in the study. So to talk about the uh, ultrasound evaluation, uh, this was pretty robust in terms of how they they did this. 
uh, and it's pretty well described as well in, in detail um, in the full text article, which I'll make sure I put in the show notes so you can access that if you want to. But I'm going to go ahead and point out some of the key uh, parts of how that exactly that was conducted. Uh, so the first thing to note is that uh, due to the long time frames of this study, um, different ultrasound equipment was used over the years. And again, if you want the specifics of the ultrasound equipment used, the authors have specified this in their full text article. But basically, uh, they used three different scanners over, over the time frame of the study. Uh, two examiners performed the baseline ultrasound scans, uh, one um, a radiologist and the other a rheumatologist, and both had over 20 years of ultrasound experience. A different examiner performed the ultrasound scans at the follow-up in 2016, and over half of the scans during this time were re-evaluated by one of the original ultrasound examiners in a blinded fashion. And an inter-observer and intra-observer investigation was performed, where the difference in fascia thickness between the ultrasound scans performed by the third examiner was less than 0.2 millimetres. So the researchers recorded quite a lot of characteristics or features of the diagnostic ultrasound scans. And I'm just going to talk you through exactly what they were looking at. So the first thing um, they looked at was plantar fascia thickness, which is uh, perhaps one of the most uh, used methods for uh, confirming or diagnosing the presence of uh, plantar fasciitis. They also looked at uh, echogenicity. They looked at bony, uh, the presence of bony erosions and heel spurs and ossifications and signs of a prior uh, fascia rupture, so any, any um, previous signs of that. Uh, there were some additional recordings which were only done at the follow-up period, which was thickness of the heel fat pad, um, and elastog uh, elastography was also documented along with colour Doppler. The plantar fascia thickness was measured in a longitudinal fashion, um, and they took the measurements at the thickest point which was either at the origin of the fascia or into the arch of the foot. So quite a conventional way for measuring for plantar fascia uh, thickness. Uh, the heel fat pad was measured vertically at the shortest distance from the superficial border of the fascia to the skin, uh, just above the calcaneus. And at least three measurements on three different still pictures were used for each foot. And the average measurement of uh, fascia thickness and thickness of the heel fat pad were registered. Echogenicity was subdivided into three groups. Group one was normal fascia uh, with a regular fibrillar appearance of, uh, and fascia thickness of less than four millimeters. Group two had um, doubtful pathological echogenicity and group three um, had obviously diseased fascia that was hypoechoic and thickened, so greater than four millimeters. Um, and this also had an irregular or missing fibrillar appearance. So of the 174 participants in the study, 172 of them were reviewed for a telephone follow-up interview. And the mean follow-up time was nine and a half years from the onset of symptoms. Um, in the study group, there 52 of them were 52% uh, sorry were female and 48% were male, so pretty even split between men and women. On average, patients had tried 3.8 different treatments and 93% of patients had previously received a cortical steroid injection. So this was um, quite clearly the um, one of the, the most uh, used treatment methods for this study group. 79 patients, uh, sorry, 79% of patients had tried insoles, 
66% underwent rehabilitation, 46% took non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and 25% received shockwave therapy. 21% tried acupuncture, 10% tried laser therapy, and uh, nine had ultrasound therapy and just 2% underwent surgery. So at the follow-up uh, period, there were 54% uh, of patients that were asymptomatic and 46% uh, percent of patients that still, still suffered with plant fasciitis. And what was interesting about the results is that um, in the asymptomatic group, the average number of days until symptoms resolved was uh, 725 days, uh, which is around two years of ongoing symptoms until resolution. <clears throat> um, I know quite a lot of uh, practitioners or podiatrists or GPs um, recommend, uh, sorry, not recommend, they advise patients that uh, plant fasciitis can take up to a year to resolve. Uh, based on this study, um, that would be a bit of an understatement as um, what this study is actually telling us is that um, it can take up to two years for symptoms to resolve and this is if they resolve as well so let's bear in mind that around only half of the patients in this study had a uh, were asymptomatic at a two-year mark um, if they weren't uh, asymptomatic at a two-year mark then they had a significant ongoing symptoms for a longer duration which we'll get onto in a moment so I think it's a particularly uh, important point, really. So if you are um, advising patients on how long it can take for plant fasciitis to resolve, and if your current baseline is six months or 12 months, then you might want to just reconsider the message you're delivering to your patient there. Um, as you might find that at 12 months, if they're still no better, then um, they're probably going to feel a little bit upset or a bit disappointed that... Um, uh, you know, they've been given information which has uh, not really set them up for mentally preparing uh, or, you know, how to manage this uh, problem in the long term. So the researchers um, did a statistical analysis and what this indicated was that the risk of having plantar fasciitis at the one year mark was 80%. So most people would have plantar fasciitis uh, one year from the onset of initial symptoms. At the five year mark, this risk dropped to 50%. At 10 years, there really wasn't much change where the uh, risk dropped to 45%. And at 15 years, it hardly budged at all uh, between the 10 and 5 year period at 44%. Uh, so basically, there was no change between 10 and 15 years. So um, fresh ultrasound scans were performed at the follow-up in 137 patients. So most of the patients that agreed to take part in the study were available to have a, a follow-up ultrasound scan, which is pretty good. Um, what they found was that there was no uh, statistically um, significant differences in the plantar fascia thickness uh, between symptomatic and asymptomatic patients at follow-up. Uh, both groups were measured um, on average as over 6.5 millimeters uh, after the initial scan and just over four millimeters at the follow-up. Therefore, ultrasound features um, is not really a good prognostic indicator to determine whether a patient still has plant fasciitis or not. And again, this is never a particularly important point really as it's quite well known that patients tend to fixate on scan findings. So if you scan a patient to um, for diagnostic purposes to, um, to help confirm diagnosis, I think this is great. And that's really good for patient education and reassurance, um, letting them know that we sort of know what we're dealing with. 
But um, if a patient's um, quite keen on knowing what that scan might reveal um, later down the line, um, and this this is something which is a bit of a theme amongst patients, particularly for um, other chronic um, pain sufferers, uh, low back pain is one which is a quite controversial uh, and a heavy topic in the physiotherapy world. Um, but this also applies to plantar heel pain. So if you're a practitioner that has access to diagnostic ultrasound um, and you're following your patients up um, as part of your treatment planning, maybe that might be three months after you've tried all foces or a year down the line of um, trying something like injection therapy or shockwave therapy or whatever it may be. Just bear in mind that when you scan the plantar fascia at the follow-up period, um, regardless whether the patients are still symptomatic or asymptomatic at that stage, is that you, what you might find is that there are still signs of pathological features of the plantar fascia. Um, and then you, you've got to be careful how you communicate this to patients. If you um, tell them that the plantar fascia still doesn't look healthy and it looks thickened, then this may cause them to catastrophize or feel like the treatment hasn't worked, even though it's not necessarily linked to their pain levels. And then they might wonder or worry about what this might mean for the future. So for me personally, I think the take-home message from this is that... Uh, Ultrasound is very useful for diagnostic purposes um, prior to starting the treatment plan, but not necessarily a good indicator of whether um, you know, a patient has made a recovery from plantar fasciitis and whether um, the presence of uh, pathological features later on um, is relevant at all. So a good diagnostic indicator, but perhaps not a good pro prognostic indicator. Okay, so moving on, um, at baseline, 55% of patients had heel spurs. Um, and this didn't seem to result in a poorer prognosis at all. Um, the mean heel fat pad thickness was 9 millimeters in those that had received a corticosteroid injection and 9.4 millimeters in those who did not. So really not much of a difference really um, in heel fat pad thickness in patients that did and didn't have a corticosteroid injection. The study uh, calculated that um, overall there is a significantly higher risk for long-lasting symptoms in female patients and patients with bilateral heel pain. And just going back to the, the heel spurs, so the fact that this didn't seem to influence prognosis for PF, this is also important um, because similar with ultrasound scans, patients can sometimes get a bit hung up on uh, the presence of a heel spur, which Sometimes it's um, picked up on an x-ray. This is quite commonly done maybe at the GP surgery where patient presents with heel pain. GP decides to refer them for an x-ray. They have a follow-up with the consultation with the GP and then the GP says, yeah, you've got a heel spur. Go see a physio or go see a podiatrist, whatever that might be. Um, and then they come into your clinic and they mention they've got heel spurs and then they're sort of get a bit confused really as to how your treatment is going to change that um, they know you're not necessarily going to do something surgically and you're not proposing that either so they, it tends to I find just cause a bit of confusion for patients when we're giving them stretching exercises or foces to try and offload the plantar fascia and really what they're thinking is but what about this heel spur so um, obviously it's, it's our duty to make sure we re-educate patients on on the irrelevance of heel spurs and that it's were believed to be part of the um, the plant fasciitis process, if you like, as opposed to being the cause of the patient's pain. So in summary, I thought this was a very interesting and insightful paper, and I think it provides us with a better understanding of just how long symptoms can persist for heel pain sufferers. And it also reaffirms um, findings in other studies, such as the irrelevance of heel spurs and plant fascia thickness when considering prognosis. 
Uh, so I hope you've found the episode interesting. And if you want to read the full text and article, like I said, I would put I'll put a link in the show notes so you can access that. Um, don't forget, if you haven't already, to subscribe, then uh, just click the subscribe button. You can also find me on Twitter at Heal Expert. And just as a final mention, um, we're currently recruiting for new podiatrist team members at Hat Health and Movement Clinic, which is where I currently work. And I've been based there for just under five years now. Um, so, yeah, we're looking for a new podiatrist to come and join our team. Um, so if you're interested, you can find more information about the job at our Hat Clinic website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But it's www.hatclinic.co.uk. And we've, we've um, got opportunities for podiatrists from uh, different ranges of experience. So whether you're a graduate podiatrist, perhaps a little bit more experienced or, or even a senior podiatrist, then, um, you know, potentially we've got opportunities for you. So uh, please do feel free to apply. <clears throat> Alternatively, you can get in touch with me directly if you've got any questions and I'd be more than happy to advise you um, as best I can. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. And hopefully I'll try and put out another episode in the near future and um, make sure it's not been as long a gap as this one uh, between this one and the previous uh, episode. Thanks for listening. Take care.